Well, greetings online, church family. Excited to be together. Let's go ahead and dive into a time of worship. Should I ever? 
Well, thank you so much for being a part of our worship service and diving into worship with us. Well, man, as a church family, one of the things that we love to do for you is pray. And so if there's any way we can be a resource for you, we'd love to pray over any of your concerns. You can text us at 97,000, any of your prayer requests, and we'd be honored to pray for you. Well, um, if you would be interested in learning more about the ministries that we have at ABF, please go ahead and check out our website. We've got things for youth. We've got things for senior adults and everywhere in between. So go to our website and check out all the resources that we have for you. Well, the only way that we can continue making videos like this in our ministry on Sunday mornings and throughout the week is through uh, your generous donations. So if you would love to give to us, we'd uh, appreciate it if you just go on our website and hit the Give tab and uh, support our ministries. That would be a huge blessing to us at ABF. Well, before we jump into our message, I'd love to just offer a prayer to everyone here online listening. Father God, we love you so much, and we are grateful for your presence in our lives, and you are at work in our lives. No matter where we're at, God, you are there, and we acknowledge that. So Lord, as we come to hear your word, God, would your truth resonate in our hearts, souls, and minds. God, speak to us. May your Holy Spirit do a work in us. Uh, prepare us for what you want to teach us. We love you. And we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. And thank you, Adrian. Excited to spend some time now in God's word. And as you know, if you've been uh, with us for this last stretch, just working our way through the book of Hebrews. And we're all the way here in the second part of chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 12. But you might remember last week where we're at, we're at with uh, Josh opening God's word and talking a little bit about the benefits and blessings of discipline. Got my wheels turning and remembering kind of growing up what kind of a household I grew up in. My dad was very much a disciplinarian, but he, he did a great job of kind of balancing both worlds where he was, we were always sure to be reminded that he loved us and supported us, but he also, if we're honest, ran a pretty tight ship. I remember at certain times we'd be out and about, whether at a store or at a at a restaurant, uh, you'd see a, a kid throwing a tantrum with parents that were seemingly out of control in the situation. I would always remember on multiple occasions, my dad would say the same thing. Oh, if they'd just give me one week with that kid, that would never happen again. We still tease him about that to this day, but really it's probably a, a true statement. And I remember even as kids, like we understood that like, hey, we, we played hard as a family, but we also needed to take dad seriously. If we ever got a little bit out of line with our tone with either him or my mom, I remember one specific thing, statement he would always make that would pull us back on uh, back to center. He would say, who are you talking to right now? And we'd have to think, oh, wait a second, we need to adjust a little bit of our tone. Kind of an interesting statement, who do you think you're talking to, is really, to some degree, the way I see this particular section of Scripture. 
is that we're getting a reminder of who we're dealing with, where it's a beautiful picture and reminder of the blessings of being a part of God's family and heading towards his king, eternal kingdom, but also a little bit of a pause for his, their audience to remind them, wait a second, remember who you're dealing with. Let me pray before we explore that. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to gather around your word and to learn more about you and to get a clearer picture of who we are dealing with, your beautiful line that you walk of, of mercy and grace, but also a reminder of your majesty and the, uh, the position that you hold over the universe. I, I pray that you teach us in this time that our understanding of you would grow. We'd be free of distraction. We invite that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in verse 12 of chapter 12, it says this, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, many become defiled. All right, there's a lot going on there just out of the gates. I want to walk through it a little bit. The therefore connects us to what our last subject was. And if you remember what our last subject was, it was the, all the positive results that come from endurance and the benefits of discipline in our lives and shaping our character and making us more and more like Jesus Christ. But now, because of that, because we understand those benefits, now he's charging his audience to rise up, to, to stand up, if you will. This description he uses, though, of the alternative is it's kind of a, a, a pretty gra a graphic image of drooping hands, weak knees. I, I picture if you've ever had a, a kid that was being forced to go a further distance than they were wanting to, and then what do they start to do? They start to get dramatic, and their hands weigh, weigh so heavy, and their legs are weak, and they start walking in a zigzag motion. I think that's a little bit of the imagery that he's calling us out of. He's saying, Let, let's stop with that, and let's rise up this rise up invitation, I think, is an important one because I believe too many people are kind of in this perpetual state of being fallen and broken and just barely making it each from day to day. And I, I get the, the picture as he's calling them, he's charging them to lift that there's kind of this divine human partnership that's expected. What's he tell us to do? We're told to lift up so that we're healed. Do you see how that works? It often starts with our own resolve that, the, that, that then he empowers and supports. So in other words, you start your day saying, man, I am going to get up today. I'm going to stop dwelling on the past. I'm going to stop blaming others for my situation. I'm going to impact the world for Jesus Christ in the power of his son. You imagine that's something that our God can work with. And he's like, man, when you start with that lifting up where you partner with God in that, he will come alongside of that and support it for sure. 
says the alternative is to be put out of joint. I don't know if you've ever had that situation with your health, with something's been out of joint. Maybe it's a, a, a arm, maybe it's a leg, maybe it's a, even, probably for me, I look back on that expression, I think of times where you've had your back out of place or a pinched nerve and you're just like, man, I have to get to a chiropractor. He's saying, man, when you continually live in this state of fallen brokenness, he's like, man, that's what it moves towards. It's just getting out of, out of joint and out of sort. That's not the Christian life that we've been invited to. Instead, he calls us to rise. It's interesting that as he's talking about this topic of rising up, that he gives this charge of striving for peace. This topic of relational peace really is directly connected so often to why somebody has trouble rising up, because they haven't been able to sustain peace with those around them. And it makes sense because we're surrounded with so many potential things to create and stir up conflicts amongst ourselves. It almost seems like our world is positioned for that, whether it's politics, whether it's our opinions on vaccines, masks, in the last couple of years, social issues, gun control, you, you name it. There's things for us to stand on different sides of the line. But he calls us instead, though, to strive, that strive is this word, this picture of effort it takes to have peace with all people. Romans 12, 18 tells us the exact same thing. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I do like that it gives that caveat as much as it depends on you because sometimes it is out of your control. You've done everything that you can to promote peace and to try to bring peace, but then there's a certain point where you just release it and turn it over to God for the outcome. A couple suggestions that I see uh, for, for relating to this striving for peace, things that I think would help with that. The first thing that I think that gets us in a lot of trouble with relational conflict is expectations that we have for non-believers. What I would say one, step number one for trying to strive for peace is not to expect non-believers to act like believers. You've maybe heard me mention this before is kind of our, our tendency to get mad at, at blind people running into walls. That doesn't make any sense. For us to be able to strive for peace involves be, making the choice to, choo- to, to, to look past and, and have compassion for people. Man, they're just in this state of, of their self as God, and man, that's just taking them nowhere. We should have compassion, not be store, stirred towards seeing the outside world as enemies. Second practical thing that I think helps with striving for peace, you see it right there in the text, is choosing the route of grace. It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See, as followers of Jesus Christ, we can't just absorb God's grace and just and bask in it in ourselves and not extend it to others. We need to be quick to forgive, quick to extend grace. 
Early in our marriage, Adrian, my wife, and I are both pretty strong personalities. And man, our first couple of years, we had a lot of trouble with this, man. We would have little things that would happen in our day that would bug us from what the other person did. And we'd hold on to that offense and it would just kind of wreck our day and even our week. And we began to realize, man, grace is necessary if you're going to have a healthy God-honoring relationship. And so we got much better at picking and choosing which things to hold on to, which things to release, which things were worth elevating, which things should be escalated. And you start to realize the older you get, you're kind of like, man, there's not that much that shouldn't be wrapped and covered in the umbrella of grace. I find it description here is an important one that talks about the root of bitterness that comes if we don't extend grace. The root of bitterness, it's interesting that it uses the word root there because that's exactly how bitterness works in our lives. One of the things that I don't necessarily love in being a homeowner is taking care of our different, uh, the day that you have to uh, start picking weeds and going through that. We have one particular weed and I I tried looking it up, Googling it this week. I could not figure out the name of it. Here's a picture of it that maybe you'll recognize. This particular weed is miserable. One, because it grows like crazy. Two, it's got all these little uh, micro thorns in it, so you can't really pull it very well. If you cut it at its base, it's only coming back. And you can see in the second picture that's on there is the thing that keeps that crazy weed coming back is this intricate root system under the surface. In fact, it can go without water for extended periods of time because if you see there, it has these little water sacks that hold water and allow it to go without for very long periods of time. I was thinking about that. Man, that's a perfect picture of how bitterness works. And you think you've taken care of it. You're moving on with life and you've kind of paused on the, the conflict or issue, but you've never really chosen forgiveness. And when that happens, that's exactly what's warned here, waiting until it springs up and causes trouble. May not be seen on the surface, but it is running thick and has a miserable root system. Describes the outcome of that. It says, many become defiled by this. Many become defiled. And many of us have someone in our circle of influence that we cross paths with. And you can't spend more than five minutes with them without, that, without them talking about some kind of offense that they've experienced and haven't let go of. You see, it can really crush us from the inside out. I've heard it before. Uh, unforgiveness is like drinking the own, your own poison that you're intending for somebody else. That's really how it works in our lives. So it's a warning against that to get up. One of the things that keeps us from getting up is unforgiveness. But then he moves on to what it looks like when we do get up to live a life of holiness, to move towards purity. Verse 14, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. So continuing to talk about this idea of rising, but it's interesting that it uses Esau as an example 
when talking about sexual immorality. If you're familiar with Esau's story, what did he do? He was willing to trade his birth his birthright for a good meal. And you're just like, well, how does that relate to sexual immorality? How is that any kind of comparison? It's interesting because that's not normally what's attached to him. But if you think about it, the comparison that's being used here is for the person that's living for the here and now rather than the future blessing or inheritance of God. Isn't that at its very root, the, the foundation of really all sexual immorality? It's temporary gratification. So many lives are ruined by brief moments of pleasure. So Esau, that was a, a, a perfect picture of that. Somebody that lived for the temporary and the enjoyment of pleasure now rather than clinging to God's future blessing. So sexual immorality, that's the topic this section is bringing up. Sexual immorality, let's make sure we're clear on what that means. Anything sexual outside of the marriage covenant in either thought or action. There's no exclusions to this. There's no, well, we're grown-ups now. We're able to dabble in that. That's a, a warning for the young. No, this is the whole idea. If you're not married, you should not be having sex, period. That's God's call throughout Scripture. Sex is intended to be a gift within the boundaries of marriage. So, what do you do if you're not staying within those parameters? Well, it's fairly simple if I'm your, as your pastor can give some counsel on this. Stop it. Stop having sex outside of marriage. If you're living together, move out. There has to be some radical changes in your life if you're going to get within the confines. And man, relationships are hard enough as it is. You want to be within the boundaries of God's blessing in your life. So changing some of the patterns of behavior in your life is what he's calling us to as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what, we're in a month where every sexual perversion of our day is celebrated. And really, if you think about it, it's a heartbreaking to see the path that it takes so many down. But here, it's intended, as I already mentioned, it should stir compassion for us, not disdain for us to be heartbroken for so many that are looking to go down all the wrong roads trying to find love that they're so desperate for. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we're called, as you see here, to live differently. Describes something that's kind of hard to to figure out what it's saying at first, it says, For you know that afterward, talking about Esau, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You're like, well, why wasn't he able to repent? I think the clue is seen right there in the description. When he desired to inherit the blessing, his tears weren't compelled by repentance, by a, a, sor a sorrow but instead he wanted to get back to being within the blessing of God. You see, that's where all of a sudden God sees directly to what's going on in someone's heart. So purity is the second pursuit that we're called to, continuing in the text. Now looking a little bit about a 
position of reverence. It says, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest or storm, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal, ga- uh, festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of better word than the blood of Abel. Now, where is it going with this? I think it's coming back to our original topic of reminding us of who we're dealing with. Who are we dealing with? Growing up in an all-Italian neighborhood back in Chicago called Melrose Park, it was kind of a funny thing because everybody thought they were from some kind of a mafia movie. If you said something uh, derogatory to somebody, uh, the response would be similar to what my dad had said earlier. They'd say, you talking to me? You talking to me? This, this pushback of like, wait a second, who do you think you're dealing with? That's the same picture we see here in the text that the author is trying to say, man, we should not be treading towards Almighty God without a certain level of reverence. And he uses examples of, uh, of what they'd be familiar with, the response others before them had had with encounters with God. The encounter with him included all of the, those things, blazing fire, darkness, gloom, storm, all of those things that they experienced at Mount Sinai that even caused Moses himself to tremble. That's the God that you're dealing with. And he turns a corner from the, from the old experience with God and basically saying, things haven't really changed. Now we're coming into his presence. And he describes some of the things that ex- they experienced in the city of the living God, listing who'd be in attendance there. Innumerable angels, the early believers, God himself, spirit of the believers that have died, and then Jesus Christ himself as our mediator. It's important what he says about God himself there. It says the judge of all. So for us to realize that we're dealing with a God that man is, should cause us to quake in fear like he did the encounters back in the Old Testament. But things haven't changed when you're thinking about entering into the gates and courts of God Almighty. You see, the world doesn't like to acknowledge this, but we do have a judge. We will one day answer to Almighty God. So many want to resist that idea because they prefer a life without accountability. But really, if you think about it, judgment doesn't hinge on our belief. doesn't really matter if you believe in God or not. You're still going to stand before him at some point in time. That's what he's trying to get us back to is a certain level of reverence. And that reverence should move us to appropriately listen to the warnings being given. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. 
For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. Again, referring back to the Old Testament. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So what is he saying here? First, he's charging them, man, don't refuse him who he's speaking. Who's speaking? It's basically the author is talking about himself, who's speaking the very actual message that's coming directly from God. He refers to the voice in the Old Testament that shook the mountain as the same voice and the same power that will one day shake the earth and the very heavens. As much as there's a day where judgment is coming for mankind, there's also a day where we're told where God is going to wrap up with everything that has been made and bring a new city, a new eternity, a new, the, the only things that are going to last are those who have embraced Jesus Christ. The removal of everything that was made, only keeping what is eternal. You can read about this in a pretty powerful description in Revelations chapter 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I often talk to people that when you're talking about God's return and with the presence of Jesus Christ and what we have to look forward to, they're kind of hesitant. It's kind of like, well, I'm not quite sure what to think about what's to come on the other side of all this, but we have to be reassured in scripture, even this description, no more pain, no more crying. The death is no more. All the old has passed away. And what he brings in new with him reigning and ruling appropriately is going to be beyond what we can even imagine. This day is coming whether we heed the warning or not. That's basically what he's saying here in the text. He, he's saying, don't be the one that refuses who warned them. He says, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Basically saying, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy that ignores a warning. I've told this story before. I was thinking about that worth ignoring warnings. I 
was at a, a friend's house and my best friend Joe was there with me and they had this little yappy dog and I was just messing with it a little bit and the owner had warned us, said, hey, it's kind of, be careful, it's kind of known to nip sometimes and I kept on trying to play with it. My friend Joe said, listen, that dog is going to bite you. I'm like, look at the size of it. It's not gonna bite me. It's no big deal, even if it did. And sure enough, as I was warned, that thing ran up my body, clamped onto my arm and just held on for dear life. It was a pretty dramatic experience. I remember my arm was all messed up and bleeding. And afterwards, uh, they said, I don't even remember saying this, but they said, Scott, and as you're walking to get some, uh, uh, some bandages, you said, yeah, Joe warned me he was going to bite me. And that's exactly, I was that guy that didn't heed a warning. Well, on a scale way larger than a little yappy dog, we're being warned about our eternity to really think through and listen for the person that's listening to this message right now that's never bent a knee and embraced Jesus Christ. Man, don't ignore this warning. Don't walk so dangerously ahead towards the, the meeting of Almighty God with a brazen mentality. Well, I'll, I'll deal with this at some point. Man, I'll tell you what, some point may never ever come. Call out to him even in these moments. It's a perfect time to cling to him for rescue alone. He ends with the last charge and we'll end in these last two verses. Verse 28 says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Wow. Basically, what he says, therefore, is again, because of this, because of the God in which we're dealing with, that is the judge over our eternities, we're to appropriately respond to him. And what does it say our appropriate response to the hope that we have in him is to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. My question for you, just as we're wrapping up, my question for you is what is it that brings you to a place of awe with Almighty God? For me, one of the things that without fail, anytime I spend any uh, thought or consideration of the expanse of our universe, I'm always blown away with the creator God that I'm dealing with. Whether it's staring out into the night sky, whether it's a, a picture like this from the Hubble telescope that you see on the screen there, whatever it is, something that moves me to consider the expanse of his creation, the only thing I can do is drop my jaw in awe. I was reading a little bit this week about the size of our universe, and I go down some of these rabbit trails, maybe you do online as well, and this uh, was looking into the distance of the next closest star to the sun. Can I share this with you for a moment? I, I guess I can because <laughs> I've got the microphone, but here's the idea. The distance to get to the next closest star is 4.3 light years away. Now we use those term light years kind of loosely like, yeah, that's interesting. So basically it's saying the time that it takes for light to travel, it would take light to travel for over four years in order to get to the very next closest star 
to us. Then I dug in a little bit deeper. I'm like, well, how fast is, uh, is light? What does it travel at? What, do you, what speed would you need to go 4.3 years going at? Basically, light travels at 670 million miles per hour. That's the speed that it would take you 4.3 years of traveling. So just to get a little perspective, so if you enjoy a road trip, I mean, this is, this is an unbelievable distance. Anyone that's done any kind of a long, miserable road trip, you see, oh man, this just takes forever to get there. I remember visiting my wife's family up in Vancouver. We thought it'd be a fun adventure to drive there. 23 hours later, we're like never doing this again. But to give you perspective, is if you are traveling at 60 miles per hour, so you're, you're driving along and you're wanting to go the distance to the next closest star to the sun, it would take you, at 60 miles per hour, it would take you 48 million years to get there. So that's just getting to the very first star in the expanse of stars. Now that picture you just saw a moment ago of the Milky Way, which is where we, te- where we reside, it has 50 different galaxies in it. It's believed that in the Milky Way alone, that the Milky Way holds over 100 billion stars. And anytime you're like, what, 100 billion? How can you even wrap your, uh, your mind around that? 100 billion stars. And then here's where it gets even crazier, is that our galaxy is considered only one of over 100 billion galaxies that have been exposed even with our abilities with the telescopes we've had. So anytime you start considering the expanse of the universe and the creator God that spoke it all into existence, the universe that continues to expand, you're like, wow, it should leave us with jaws wide open. We should appropriately respond as it describes here in the text with worship that's in reverence and awe of who we're dealing with because he's a consuming fire as the text explains. So to think, let's personalize it just for a moment as we wrap up, that this God that spoke the universe into existence is a God that personalized it, created you in his own image, we're told in scripture. Came to earth after we had originally rejected his leadership, chosen, was willingly placed on a cruel Roman cross to die for the payments of your, for the payment of your sin, that just by belief in him, by placing our faith and trust in him, provides rescue and adoption as sons and daughters, and then promises to a one day return and to take you to this perfect kingdom where he will be our God and we will be his people. I'll tell you what, that should move us to a couple decibels louder of singing as we worship with this last song. Let me pray as we conclude. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this reminder. And I think it's important for us sometimes to where we get a little bit maybe too brazen when we're thinking about God and when we think about Jesus as kind of maybe too casually to come back 
to who we're actually dealing with, the Creator God that loves us so dearly, but also that we should take so seriously, the judge over all. And I pray for that person that's maybe listening right now that can't point to a time where they ever bent a knee and embraced you as Lord and Savior. I pray that that would even happen in these moments now as we sing this last song. For all of this, we give you glory and honor. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. In the darkness we were waiting Without hope, without light Till from heaven you came running There was mercy in your eyes To fulfill the law and prophets To a virgin came the word From a throne of endless glory To a cradle in the dirt Praise the Father
All right, church family. Well, again, thanks for being with us online. Hopefully this is a blessing to you, a reminder of how great our God is. Have an amazing week.